0: Well, thank you so much for coming, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is my session on outgrowing God, question mark. As I said in the earlier session, the question mark is important. Uh, uh, Dawkins, probably the world's most famous atheist, certainly within the uh, kind of English-speaking, Anglophile world, uh, recently wrote a book called Outgrowing God, uh, which has been kind of described as a junior version of his best-selling book, Uh, The God Delusion, and it contains uh, pretty much the same content but aimed at a slightly younger kind of uh, teenage audience. And when lockdown hit, I had the opportunity to chain myself to a computer and produce a response book called Outgrowing God? Uh, A Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the, the God Debate. And Um, That book's written in the form of dialogue between characters, representing different positions and so on. And I'm not really going to take this uh, seminar as an opportunity to talk about my book much more or to uh, take you through that. Uh, You can find out more about that on my uh, website at peterswilliams.com where you'll find lots of other free resources and my podcast and uh, YouTube channel and so forth. Instead, here we're going to think about learning from Dawkins' failed arguments. As I said, although he's an influential atheist thinker, he's not a very good arguer. Uh, And I want to kind of illustrate uh, some bad ways of arguing from uh, Dawkins' work uh, as a way of saying that uh, we, as Christians, when we're communicating and arguing with people, Uh, need to uh, avoid using bad ways, fallacious ways of arguing uh, and to be good arguers and also to actually communicate with people about how to be a good arguer. Uh, That we need to equip people in the world, both in the church and outside the church, (coughs) with the tools of how to think well so that they can think about, well, everything, including what we're telling them uh, about the Gospel. Uh, Well, one of the things that really annoys me about Dawkins' book, uh, the Outgrown God book in particular, is he kind of says to the audience reading it, um, don't just believe what you've grown up with, what you've been told by authority figures. I want to to encourage you to kind of ask, what's the evidence? Not just to take things on authority. Think about it for yourself. And as a Christian philosopher, I want to say amen to that message. But then what Dawkins does in his book is he asserts, makes lots of claims without actually giving any evidence for those claims, without even giving footnotes to references for those claims. Uh, And he doesn't uh, give people the tools to be able to carry through his advice, as it were. And one of the things that I do in in my book is I have the the philosophy professor who's kind of convened the book club. Uh, She's there just to play a kind of neutral role, but to describe as we go through uh, some of the logical fallacies, bad ways of arguing that Dawkins falls into as a way of teaching the readers about how arguments should work and how they can go wrong so that they have the tools to actually hold me and what i'm saying in the book as it were to account but also atheist sources that they read to hold them to account for whether or not they're arguing well so i'm guessing that most of you uh, know about dawkins but i'll give you a little bit of background Uh, He is uh, an atheist and zoologist by training. He's an emeritus professor, uh, a fellow of uh, New College at Oxford University, Uh, and he was the University of Oxford's first ever uh, professor for the public understanding of science between 1995 and 2008. That was an endowed chair. He came originally to prominence through his popular science books such as The Blind Watchmaker in 1986 or uh, Climbing Mount Improbable in 1996. His polemic The God Delusion from 2006 and then a uh, slightly expanded second edition in 2016 has sold over three million copies. And in 2019, he published this sort of junior version, uh, Outgrowing God. And my response, uh, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate. So as a prologue, let's just focus very briefly a little introduction to how arguments work. Philosophy 101 in terms of arguing. An argument is a set of statements, so more than one claim or statement, which serve as premises leading to a conclusion. So you're arguing for something by combining more than just one statement. You combine a number of statements together to argue for the conclusion. For example, premise one. We should reject arguments that commit Logical fallacies, that is, unsound ways of arguing. Premise two, Dawkins' arguments against belief in God commit logical fallacies. Now you can see from those two claims, if those two statements are both true, it follows that three, therefore, we should reject Dawkins's arguments against belief in God. Okay. That's kind of the shortest unit of an argument you can have. Uh, two two premises leading to a conclusion Uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle would have called that a syllogism but that's just the technical name think of it as the the shortest unit of argument you can have and you can kind of daisy chain arguments together or think of them like sections of track from your train set that's like one section of track But if you need to argue more, you can link together more and more premises and do more and more and therefores and kind of build a whole train set until you've argued everything you you need to argue. Uh, This is a a really nice little flowchart diagram of the, the three key questions you need to pose of any argument. You've got three questions, and if you say yes, To all three questions, then you can have some confidence in the argument that you're (coughs) thinking about. If at any stage you say probably no, then don't have any confidence in the argument. Because in argumentation, everything has to go right for the argument to work. But if just one kind of thing goes wrong, then the argument doesn't work. So these questions are, are are the premises clear and unambiguous? And I'll illustrate these in a moment. But do you know what it's claiming? And does it do it in an unambiguous way? Does the conclusion of the argument really follow from the premises? And are all of the premises in the argument true? If yes, 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 then okay, that argument at least has some weight to it that i need to take into account if no at any stage then chuck it out let me illustrate those three key questions this is uh, being unsound not a good argument due to false premises so if i were to argue like this i only eat broken biscuits second premise <laughs> broken biscuits contain no calories because <laughs> when you break them they all Calories will fall out, right? <laughs> yeah? You've heard that? Conclusion, therefore, I eat no calories, as you can see. Yeah? <laughs> well, what's gone wrong here is that indeed both of those premises are just false. And th- indeed, that's the only thing that's gone wrong here. Uh, In terms of the question, does that conclusion follow from the premises, you would say, yes, it does. If it were true that I only eat biscuits, and if it were true that broken biscuits contain no calories, then it would follow that I do indeed eat no calories. But unfortunately for all of us, uh, both of those premises are are untrue. Or you can be invalid, a bad argument, because the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises, such as an argument like this. Uh, premise, high fat foods are bad for you. Second premise, some yoghurt is high in fat. conclusion, Therefore, all yoghurt is bad for you. And the problem there is I've, I've made a shift from a claim about some yoghurt to making a claim in the conclusion about all yoghurt. So you, you can ask yourself, what, what conclusion should follow from the premises? Obviously, it's high-fat foods are bad for you, some yogurts high in fat, therefore, some yoghurt is bad for you, in, in that sense. but it, So there's a difference between what should follow and what's actually been stated as the conclusion, and that means it's invalid, because the conclusion doesn't follow. And finally, uh, that issue of ambiguity. We can argue, at least in English, like this. A plane, P-L-A-N-E, is a carpenter's tool. There's a photograph of a you plane, a, a surface flat and smooth with your plane, right? <laughs> Premise, the Boeing 747 is a plane. <laughs> now, in English, that's exactly the same word. Uh, Conclusion, therefore, the Boeing 747 (laughs) is a carpenter's tool. (laughs) Now, because it's funny, you can see that something's gone wrong. And what's gone wrong is I've traded, I've used that ambiguity, the fact that 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 one term, that word, can mean different things to just make it mean whatever the heck I like when I get to the conclusion. Uh, And so there's uh, an ambiguity there that's being used uh, and you want to try and avoid that in arguments. This is why philosophers are always so keen on what do you mean by questions, how are you defining your terms, and so on. So with that background in mind, now that you're all experts in logic, <laughs> we will now apply this to thinking about uh, some of Dawkins's key arguments. Let's start off with his not his science, but his scientism, which is an approach to how we know things. In an interview promoting Outgrowing God, Dawkins said that he wants to rid the world, quote, of anything that's not evidence-based where factual knowledge is concerned. Things which are based on authority rather than on evidence. However. Dawkins contradicts himself by repeatedly making assertions that he expects his readers to believe on his authority. And many of his assertions are wrong. And requiring evidence for all factual knowledge is also a self-contradictory theory of knowledge called scientism. Dawkins says this in uh, the book, The Magic of Reality, which is a a book of his aimed at children. He says, the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence that it does. It, i.e., real evidence, always comes back to our senses one way or another. So here's Dawkins' implicit argument. Let's let's take what he says and you kind of formalise his argument into into this premise-premise-conclusion kind of structure, so you can then analyse it carefully. Here's what he's really arguing. One, factual knowledge is necessarily evidence-based, empirical evidence-based. Two, religious claims are never evidence-based. Therefore... No religious claim counts as factual knowledge. Now, premise two here, I would say that premise is false, because some religious claims at least are evidence-based. But I'd also say that premise one here is false, because it is self-contradictory. This scientific demand that factual knowledge must be based upon empirical, kind of scientific evidence, is self-contradictory because, first of all, that demand can't be justified by empirical evidence. (laughs) And secondly, that demand actually entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. If you want to say, I'm not going to believe A until I've got empirical evidence that it's true, Well, let's call the empirical evidence that this is true B. But why should I believe that B really is empirical evidence that supports A, rather than, uh, you know, an illusion or evidence that actually is irrelevant? To the status factual status of, of a, well, you know, in order to fa- factually sensibly believe that, I've got to have some empirical evidence for those beliefs, right? Well, let's call that evidence C. But what about C? And it D. And you can see that I'm just going off into in, infinity here. It's also a claim that's open to counterexamples. Uh, in, for example, metaphysical, moral, or aesthetic knowledge. For example, you might say that here we have, you know, coffee, black coffee, of course. Uh, coffee exists, a nice empirically testable claim there. Uh, this is empirical knowledge. But what about claims like, my pleasure in drinking coffee exists? You just have to believe my self report, don't you? Um, What about claims like, enjoying coffee is good. Or, this is a beautiful cup of coffee. Now, it seems to me that we've got good reason to think that all of those premises, all those claims, are true. And things that I know are true. But they're not things that are known through this kind of, give me empirical evidence. Of it. Let's think about biological design. Unsurprisingly, as a zoologist and a teacher of evolutionary biology, Dawkins engages a lot with the issue about uh, does the natural world really give us evidence of design or is that merely an appearance of design? Indeed, Dawkins says uh, in his book The Blind Watchmaker that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. It's just that for him that appearance is misleading. But he grants from the start that that's the way it appears, that's the way it looks at least at first glance. Now as the American philosopher uh, William Lane Craig, uh, you can get his On Guard book translated into Norwegian here at the conference, I recommend it. Uh, As he says, uh, when we're thinking about how do we make design inferences, how do we justify claims about, that really does give us uh, evidence for it being designed. As a basis for a positive design inference, in addition to having high improbability or complexity, would be another way to say the same thing, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. And when these two elements are both present at the same time, we have specified complexity, which is the tip-off to intelligent design in our repeated everyday experience. Whenever we see something, that has both of these qualities, combines them, and we know where it came from, it tracks back to the action of an intelligent agent. A concrete example of this, uh, Craig says, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. But you can't just say, oh, this deal of cards is highly improbable, therefore it must have been designed. That, that doesn't work as an argument. But if you find that every time a certain player is in charge of dealing the cards, he gets all four aces, <laughs> hits that independently given pattern of, you know, a pattern that will help you to win most of the time, uh, you can bet, haha, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. Indeed, this is what Dawkins has to say about specified complexity. He says, you and I are machines of complexity of a magnitude to challenge credulity. And he notes that complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction, i.e. not just statistical improbability, improbability in a non-random direction, the direction of seeming designed for a purpose. Dawkins actually acknowledges that specified complexity is a, on the face of it, plausible indicator of design. In an article in Free Inquiry magazine, he wrote this, specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts... A pile of detached watch parts tossed about in a box over here is as improbable, as complex, as a fully functioning, what he calls genuinely complex watch. What is specified about a watch, and not the pile of watch parts, is that it is improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. So it hits this independent functionally specified pattern in a way that the equally complicated arrangement of parts on the other side of the screen doesn't. It's just an arrangement of parts. It doesn't really uh, hit anything uh, functionally specified. So, we can uh, construct a biological design argument that would go like this. Premise one, specified complexity is a reliable indicator of intelligent design. Premise two, biology contains some specified complexity. Conclusion, <coughs> therefore, biology contains a reliable indicator of intelligent design. Right? So, how does Dawkins kind of deal with this kind of argument? Well, of course, he appeals to uh, the neo-Darwinian uh, explanation. And he says that the complexity, by which we know he means the specified complexity, of the living body is so mind-shattering that the temptation to buckle at the knees and succumb to a non-explanation, i.e. a, a, a theological religious philosophical explanation is almost overwhelming but humanity's best estimate of the probability of divine creation dropped steeply in 1859 when the origin of species was published and it's declined steadily during the subsequent decades as evolution consolidated itself from a plausible theory in the 19th century to established fact today but We do have to be careful here, because evolution means many things to many different people. Um, Actually, what we might call the grand evolutionary story of our culture has many separate parts, which don't necessarily have to all go together. Uh, Let me take us through these one at a time briefly. The ancient Earth hypothesis says that the Earth is about 4.54 billion years old. The progress thesis says that living things gradually increased in complexity over time. The common ancestry hypothesis says that contemporary organisms are all descended from simpler ancestral organisms. The universal Common Ancestry Hypothesis says that all living things descended from one original primordial organism. The Neo-Darwinian, or what's uh, I think very helpful to call the Blind Watchmaker, to borrow that from Dawkins' hypothesis, says that evolution happens through natural processes requiring no non-material Purposeful guidance. Now this, note, philosophical idea, motivates the scientific theory that mutation and selection, and perhaps other similarly undirected mechanisms, are able to explain the appearance of design in biology. The neo-Darwinian Darwinian modern evolutionary synthesis, as it's called, combines uh, Darwin's theory of adaptation by natural selection with the science of genetics, which Darwin, I- in his age, just didn't know anything about genetics. So when we learnt about genetics, that had to be kind of combined into the theory. Now, there is a discussion today between adherents of the, the modern evolutionary synthesis and of a so-called extended evolutionary synthesis, I'm having t- I have trouble with the word synthesis because of my nisp, <laughs> who uh, advocate uh, additional explanations of evolution, but w- explanations that are still framed in terms of an unguided, unplanned process of physical chance and or necessity. In other words, blind watchmaker Darwinism remains the the cornerstone of modern evolutionary theory. And finally, the naturalistic origins hypothesis says that life arose from non-life by an unplanned and unguided physical process. Now, I've arranged these helpfully in uh, what many people, including myself, would consider an order of the most probably true to the least probably true. Uh, One can accept and reject evolution in different senses once you've started making these distinctions. For example, Charles Darwin's own theory of evolution by natural selection was the parts in orange. He didn't uh, make any claims about universal Uh, common ancestry, and uh, didn't really touch on the the origins question in uh, The Origin of Species. He's not talking about the origin of life per se. And he had some musings in a letter to a friend about some maybe life could have arose from non-life in a warm little pond somewhere and so on, but it wasn't part of uh, The Origin of Species book. Now, according to Dawkins... Responding to the design argument, he says, Darwin patiently tells us exactly how the the trick, the misleading appearance of design in life works. Cumulative natural selection. So note, Darwin's blind watchmaker hypothesis is really key here. So let's take this. Uh, Specified complexity is a reliable indicator of intelligent design. Premise two, biology contains specified complexity. And I've ruled out complexity there because Darwin's appeal to neo-Darwinism, sorry, Dawkins' appeal to neo-Darwinism is really a denial that the specified components, the functionally specified components of biology, are complex or unlikely enough to warrant a design inference. So if you get rid of that bit, then you can't go through to the conclusion that the conclusion won't follow. Um, and here's why uh, that is the case. Uh, Dawkins says uh, that the larger the leap through genetic space, the lower the probability that the resulting change will be viable, functional, let alone an improvement over what's there. Hence, evolution... Must in general be a crawl through genetic space, not a series of leaps. And Dawkins likens this gradual approach to getting biological specified complexity to climbing Mount Improbable, the title of one of his other famous books. The, in other words, the cliff of improbable specified complexity on one side of Mount Improbable can't be conquered without design. But, says Dawkins, around the backside of Mountain Probable, supposedly, there is a series of individually and jointly not too unlikely steps leading up to the summit. And if, if that is true, then the design argument uh, won't get off its feet. Now, Dawkins asserts that although we've no idea what gradual not too unlikely pathway organisms took up mountain probable, they must have done so. He says, uh, quote, however daunting the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled. how does dawkins know that these graded ramps can be found without having found them he says without stirring from our chair we can see that it must be so because nothing except gradual accumulation could in principle do the job Mm, what job's that (laughs) Oh, the job of explaining the apparent designedness of life without appealing to actual design, right? This is an uh, assumed gradual route. Clearly, uh, gradual accumulation is not the only possible explanation, which therefore must be true, because Dawkins is presenting the blind watchmaker explanation thesis as an alternative to genuine actual design in other words dawkins begs the question that's the technical phrase he begs the question in favor of evolution in the senses that we've talked about and against design He says, there cannot have been intermediate stages in this gradual accumulation of complexity that were not beneficial. There's got to be a series of advantages all the way that you can select. If you can't think of one, then that's your problem, not natural selections problem. (laughs) Well, I, I suppose that is a sort of matter of faith on my part, since the theory is so coherent and so powerful. So the actual situation we're in is we have things like the, this uh, um, propeller driven by a motor in uh, some bacteria that sure look like they're specified and complex. It's an outboard motor made of, mo- made of molecules. Um, and we have no apparent gradual route to undermine the apparent specified complexity of that uh, piece of uh, machinery in the cells of... Uh, Uh, those uh, organisms and so how is Dawkins going to deal with the argument Uh, just by begging the question against it and uh, assuming that this is there after all. As the Nobel Prize winning theoretical physicist Brian Josephson writes, in books such as The Blind Watchmaker a crucial part of the argument Concerns whether there exists a continuous path leading from the origins of life to man, each step of which is both favoured by natural selection and small enough, not unlikely, not too unlikely, to have happened by chance. It appears to be presented as a matter of logical necessity that such a path exists, but actually there is no such logical necessity. Rather, Commonly made assumptions in evolution require the existence of such a path. Mm. And of course, when we come to that question of the origin of life, able to undergo any kind of evolution by natural selection, well, Dawkins' appeal to natural selection is, and here's another technical term that I will explain, a red herring. What on earth is a red herring? Well, let me let you tell you. Not only is a red herring a herring cured by salting and slow smoking <coughs> to a dark brown colour, <laughs> which it is, but the, the use of this term in philosophy comes from the practice of drawing a red herring across the trail when people are hunting foxes using dogs. So the dogs are like, where's, where's the fox gone? Find the fox. And people who want to disrupt the hunt, mislead the dogs off the trail of the fox that they're meant to be pursuing, drag these smelly red fish across, and the dogs go, Ooh, that's interesting, and they, they go off in the wrong direction. <laughs> and so the fox is saved. So it's a red herring, it's a kind of uh, I- irrelevant to what you're actually meant to be doing. As the atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, writes in his book, Seeking God in Science, Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain, or even purport to, claim to, explain how life came to arise in the first place. Or as the atheist Thomas Nagel, another uh, atheist philosopher from the States, uh, says in his uh, Uh, essay on Dawkins and Atheism, he says, the origin of life remains a mystery, an event to which no significant probability can be assigned on the basis of what we know of the laws of physics and chemistry. Then there is not only an appearance of design in the biological world, but in the the world studied by cosmologists and the, the cosmos at large. This is something you may have heard of called cosmic fine-tuning. As Dawkins explains, the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which humans and their brains will come into existence. Fine-tuned in such a way. This is, again, specified complexity, you see. As physicist Lee Smolin has calculated that the odds of life-compatible numbers coming up in this fine-tuning of the cosmos just by chance, he calculates them at one chance in 10 to the power of 229. (laughs) Uh, If you're not used to thinking about numbers in powers of, quick illustration. If you were to ask, basically, how many fundamental particles, physical particles, are there calculated to be in the observable universe? That number is expressed as 10 to the power of 80, 80. 80. So 1 in 10 to the 229 uh, is a lot bigger. So this is beyond astronomical odds. Literally, right? So, yes, talking about fine-tuned complexity, one chance in 10 to the 229, let's just take that number, in such a way as to be uh, allowing life, and indeed not only life, but basically anything complex and interesting, like, you know, chemistry, uh, to exist. So, we seem to have a fine-tuning argument from specified complexity, that fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. Again, things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed, therefore the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Now, the objection that Dawkins appeals to here is something called uh, the multiverse, the multiverse objection to the fine-tuning argument. He says, look, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. It's a bit like when we suspect the the person who gets all four aces when they deal and we accuse them of cheating. They say, oh yeah, but there are lots of poker games happening. right? So actually it's not too unlikely in that one of those poker games someone's going to keep getting all four aces that's the kind of move here there are billions of universes with different laws and constants we of course we could only find ourselves in one of that minority of universes whose laws and constants happen to allow be propitious to our evolution so he's uh, denying premise one here The many universes' objection denies premise one by hypothesising the existence of an infinite or at least a very large multiverse of differently tuned universes with different laws and constants and so on. Now, a lot could be said about the multiverse hypothesis and in my Outgrowing God book, when they discuss that, there are 11 different objections uh, to it that they discuss three which I think make a very powerful cumulative case against this move. But here I will simply note that scientific appeals to a multiverse are question-begging again, question-begging, because they assume the existence of a finely-tuned universe-generating mechanism. As the agnostic philosopher, uh, uh, cosmologist Paul Davies, D- Davies writes, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level, from universe to multiverse. There has to be a, what turns out to be finely tuned, universe-generating mechanism. The multiverse theory cannot, therefore, provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit to life. If there's something that means there are lots of different universes being produced, why are they not all the same, identical, life-prohibiting universe? Why are they all different? Why does the range of differences that those universes can exhibit, why is it included within that range of possibilities, the possibility of being life-permitting? Rather than you have a, a, you know, lots of different universes, none of which are possibly life-permitting. Why is that? Well, you end up needing a finely tuned generating mechanism. Uh, that allows for the production of universes that are life-permitting. Dawkins then turns to uh, a a metaphysical, a more kind of philosophical attempt to rebut the the design from fine-tuning argument. And this uh, will be our kind of last topic. He says, the designer himself in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex, a specified complex entity of the kind that, in his turn, needs the same kind of explanation. In other words, kind of, well, yeah, but who designed the designer, right? Well, he has kind of two different uh, approaches to defending this metaphysical rebuttal. He says, first of all, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable, if not more improbable, because he says that's not an improvement. Mm. Do we make an explanatory advance if we explain this complex self-portrait in terms of the existence of the yet more complex Edouard Munch. <laughs> yes, uh, I rest my case. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> Dawkins thinks he is arguing that we should reject explanations that are more complex than the data they explain. But Dawkins is more complex than his argument so by his own rule of explanation here, he shouldn't believe that he is arguing for his rule of explanation. <laughs> this is another example of self-contradiction. It's kind of the, the very idea undermines itself. <laughs> a second avenue of defence. Dawkins says that critics of my book tried to deny that a God capable of designing something complex must himself be complex. But, okay, why think that God must be complex in the right design indicating sense? Well, Dawkins says God's got to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of the physical constants and so on. You call that simple? God has to have enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers of billions of people simultaneously. The one thing God cannot be is simple. <laughs> well, in a discussion with uh, the agnostic <coughs> philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny, uh, Kenny uh, proposed this philosophical distinction to Dawkins. He distinguished complexity of structure, like you see in biology, from complexity of function. And I've illustrated it here with uh, an electric razor. And a cutthroat razor. Uh, because Kenny said, look, the electric razor can only cut a beard. Uh, but the cutthroat razor might also be used to cut a throat, <laughs> etc. In other words, the the much more complicated electric razor, I suppose you could use it as a paperweight, you can think of some uses for it, but the much simpler cutthroat razor would seem to have lots more things that it can actually do, use it as a letter opener, use it to cut your food up with, etc. You know, cut your hair and, and so on. So the simpler cutthroat razor has a lot more complexity of function than the more complex electric razor. Demonstrating, therefore, demonstrating complexity of function doesn't demonstrate complexity of structure. Right? So, why think God must be complex rather than simple? This stuff about God has to, he has to calculate, he has to listen, he has to do these things. But that's function. And demonstrating complexity of function doesn't demonstrate complexity of structure. As if you're treating God as a complex, contingent arrangement of parts that just happened to have been put into the right arrangement of parts to achieve those functions, like that outboard molecular motor that I showed you. Dawkins' response to Kenny was to say, I really don't see what you're saying. Well, as the atheist Thomas Nagel, quote him again, says, God is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. God can't be complex in the sense of being an unlikely, complex, contingent arrangement of parts achieving a certain functional specification if God is, say, a necessarily existent being. So again, Dawkins is begging the question against God being a necessary being rather than a contingent being as traditional theology conceives God as a necessary being. So none of Dawkins' observations is an argument showing that God must be complex and not simple in the relevant sense. Dawkins' equivocates, moves between the two meanings of terms complex and simple in order to to beg the question against God being a simple, necessary being. As uh, I think it was John Lennox put it, uh, a book called The Created God Delusion wouldn't have sold so well. <laughs> <laughs> so, in conclusion, Dawkins' scientism, that theory of knowledge, that knowledge always has to be about empirical observation and so on, is self contradictory. Empirical observation is great as a way of knowing the right, the appropriate kind of things, but there's got to be more knowing about things than just that empirical way of knowing. Dawkins begs the question against the organic design argument, and his argument from ignorance against the organic design argument is is also a red herring. It's irrelevant with respect to the origin of life. Uh, Dawkins' response to the fine-tuning design argument begs the question. Dawkins' arguments against complex explanations is self contradictory, and Dawkins equivocates between complexity of function and of structure. And Dawkins begs the question against God being a necessary being. So you'll see in the highlighted orange, we've got arguments that that have a self contradiction in them that beg the question that are red herring, that are are, are about irrelevant things, and equivocation, uh, using ambiguity uh, in order to get to your point. And those are just four fallacious bad ways to argue. And I think it behoves us as Christians, when we're communicating and doing apologetics and so on, A, to be better at arguing than those who critique us, and B, to actually, equip people both within the church and outside of the church with the tools of thinking with an understanding of how arguments should work and how they can go wrong as a way of saying you hold me to account against you know these standards of of truth telling and you hold the atheists to account against the same standards uh, and then we'll see what we will see. Thank you very much for attending, and I'm very happy to take some uh, questions if we have uh, time for that. If I don't manage to get to you, through my website, peterswilliams.com, there's a contact form. And I've got some giant business cards with me that have my, uh, my website address and some info about books and so on me. So you can um, grab one of these as you go out if you want to.